this is what's left after a house has been hit by a U.S. airstrike. Susanna George is the Kabul bureau chief for The Post. And recently, she visited Helmand province in the southwest of Afghanistan. There are chunks of concrete, bricks, broken glass, a few shreds of fabric. Maybe they were curtains, clothing. It's hard to tell. And so this was where one of the bombs was dropped, right here. Like so many in Helmand, Syed Gull, who doesn't have a last name, suffered unimaginable loss to the war. As we walk through the rubble, he's pointing to where the missiles landed. One dropped over here, another dropped over there. It's been five years since U.S. airstrikes left him with nothing. The attacks destroyed his home, his business, and killed nine of his family members, including both his parents and a one-year-old child. So there's two bedrooms next to each other. The attack hit when his family was asleep. Seidgull only survived because he happened to be out of town that night. He says he doesn't know if they were killed instantly or if they suffocated under the rubble. The strike hit just after 11 at night, and his neighbors, fearing the blast would be followed by a night raid, waited until dawn to dig out the bodies. Now, under Taliban rule, the strikes over Helmand have stopped. But despite a year of peace, his life, like so many others, remains haunted by war. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 15th. One year ago today, Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, fell to the Taliban. The Afghan government collapsed and then began the chaotic weeks of the American withdrawal. Thousands of people crowded the airport, desperately trying to leave the country. There are scenes of panic and pandemonium at Kabul airport today as desperate people pour onto the runway trying to flee the country. Hundreds of people wait in the blistering heat, hoping for a flight out. Thousands of people were able to leave. Many others were not able to make it out. And there were also a lot of other people in Afghanistan who didn't want to leave, who were just relieved to be at the end of this endless war. Over the next two weeks on the show, we're going to be bringing you stories about the disastrous American withdrawal from Afghanistan. You'll hear about the people who escaped Kabul but are still in limbo. You'll hear about the U.S. service members who were on the front lines during those deadly final weeks of the war. But today, Susanna George is taking us far away from those scenes at the Kabul airport to the rural, more conservative Helmand province, more than 400 miles away. During the war, that was where some of the most gruesome fighting took place. And in the years since the Taliban took over, Helmand province has been a place of relative peace and quiet. But many people there are now struggling with the cost of that peace. Here's Susanna. 
It was an airstrike in 2019 that first brought me here. The Trump administration was ramping up its air campaign in Afghanistan, setting records for the numbers of bombs dropped on the country in a single month. Civilian casualties were spiking, and Helmand was bearing the brunt of the conflict. We were hearing reports of an airstrike that killed more than 20 civilians at a wedding party in Musakala. That's a district in northern Helmand. I'd only just begun covering Afghanistan, and I was struggling to gather information from Kabul. U.S. officials flatly denied it was their doing, but local Afghan officials were outraged. They were calling for an investigation. So I flew to Lashkargah, the provincial capital. The flight was less than an hour from Kabul. Today, commercial airlines no longer fly there. Our most recent trip took nearly a day to reach the province. When I arrived in 2019, I found some witnesses and survivors, but it was incredibly difficult. Helmand was so unstable, I could barely conduct interviews on the street. I couldn't leave the capital. All the roads in and out of the city were dotted with Taliban checkpoints. And Musakala, where the strike occurred, that was entirely off limits to an American journalist. At that point, it was the Taliban's de facto capital in the country's south. I would never have imagined that I would ever set foot in Musakala in my lifetime. That just three years later, I'd be able to see where the strike occurred for myself. And even after all that time, there was still evidence of the attack lying on the ground. Here, the mud brick wall is scarred with bullet holes, as are some of the trees. A piece of the car, one of the two cars that was hit in the attack that left over 20 civilians killed lies beneath a tree and up above in the tree branches is a plate that was used to mix henna for the wedding ceremony that the family was returning from. Like Saeed Gul, who we first met, survivors of this strike say they were never interviewed as part of an investigation and the Pentagon maintains no civilians were killed or injured in the incident. Now at a market in Musakala, just a few steps away from the rubble of Side Gul's home, shopkeepers remember the day the government was toppled. They said the district was filled with relief and joy as families flooded shops and streets they had long avoided for fear of air or drone strikes. But Muhammad Nabi Kanuni, this 25-year-old shopkeeper, says it didn't last long. Now, sales are down, and so are his profits. The only people making money in Helmand are those selling opium behind closed doors. The Taliban recently outlawed the cultivation and sale of the drug, but he said dealers with hidden stock are still in business. Do you remember what it used to sound like? Or has it been so long that you don't remember what it used to sound like? At the height of the fighting here, Kanuni said the sound of drones, helicopters, and fighter jets was constant. He says he couldn't sleep, he couldn't think straight. And he remembers times when there were some 50 funerals a week. He doesn't want to go back to those days. But now, 
he fears for the country's economic future. Taliban leadership admits Helmand needs more aid for reconstruction and to compensate those who've lost family members. But a Taliban spokesman blamed the international community. He said the group doesn't have the money to improve people's lives because of cuts to aid and sanctions and the freezing of the country's assets. But the Taliban have delivered resources to some in Helmand. Schools teaching religious education. Madrasas. These are schools that teach students the memorization of the Quran are booming in Helmand. And admissions have spiked, especially among young boys. Here, residents and teachers estimate there are now more students in religious schools than in secular ones. In this class, children are in the middle of a recitation. The kids here, as young as five, sit on the floor under simple wooden desks, rocking back and forth as they read. Their teacher, Mulawi Abdul Haq Hamas, asks one of the older children to recite the day's lesson. He says they're learning to be good Muslims, to study the Quran so they can teach other students at other madrasas. But when the children are asked what they're learning, their answers are robotic. They repeat the same thing, one after the other. We're learning Arabic reading, writing, and the Holy Quran. Afghanistan's previous government attempted to monitor madrasas like this one. They were fearful the schools were incubators for extremism, and the international community pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into secular education in Afghanistan, especially for women and girls. But that investment has evaporated after the U.S. withdrawal. There are now fewer secular schools in the country, and millions of Afghan girls have been barred from the classroom. In Musakala, I spoke to a woman who began sobbing when I asked her about education for women and girls. She asked to speak on the condition of anonymity and for her voice not to be recorded. She described the last year of peace as a broken promise. The Taliban told her that after jihad was complete, children would receive an education. Her oldest, a daughter, is approaching elementary school. But she said the war is over and there's nothing. Before, when she imagined what her life would be like without violence, she always assumed it would include a brighter future for her children. Now, she says she doesn't believe that's the case. After the break, Susanna takes us to a court, a healthcare clinic, and a school. And she talks about the ways that peace has brought other dangers. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. 
I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Over the past year, the Taliban has also established more Sharia courts in Helmand. These are tribunals governed by the group's strict interpretation of Islamic law. And the expansion of the courts is just one more step toward the elimination of secular society here. Sharia judges arbitrate disputes and deliver punishments, including jail time, fines, and beatings. One such court in Sangin is full of men waiting for their cases to be heard. Judge Al-Takhadir Nakashbandi says he's often issuing new rulings on old government cases. And his decisions are final. Another of the judges, Said Mohammed Haqqani. Said the court has had to expand its hours since the war ended to accommodate the flood of cases. But the Taliban's courts have come under intense criticism by rights groups. Judges have been accused of using torture, ignoring due process, and issuing corporal, often public, punishments. Regardless, these courts have been central to the Taliban's popularity among some Afghans for years. They deliver decisions quickly, and many Afghans believe them to be less corrupt than the previous government's justice system. Afghanistan's last government was racked by corruption, and its justice system was a bureaucratic maze that you needed money and connections to navigate. Despite a year in power, Taliban governance has expanded very little beyond courtrooms and security. Just outside a court in the town of Marja, Taliban guards are refusing a woman and her children entry to the building. She's pleading to see an official and request compensation her husband's death in an airstrike. She's told to go home and wait. She makes one last appeal for help, saying she's waited at home before. But the aid never arrived. The answer is still no. So she turns to leave, her children following, clutching at the hem of her dress. In Helmand, thousands have lost loved ones to the war, and thousands more are now struggling to care for the injured. Without the threat of violence, travel is now safer, and the province's clinics have been overwhelmed with patients in search of medical care. But even though healthcare is more accessible now, there's less funding and fewer healthcare workers than at any point in the last decade. 
At this clinic in the town of Sangin, the hallways are packed. 45-year-old Reedy Ghoul is waiting to see a doctor, and she describes suffering symptoms similar to panic attacks. She began to have the episodes when her son was arrested by foreign troops and her husband was killed. A mortar struck their house when Taliban forces were pushing U.S. and NATO forces out of the district. And just outside the clinic, the destruction along some of the streets is total. There's been little in the way of rebuilding. Piles of dirt are all that's left of rows of mud brick homes that once stood at the heart of this main bazaar. Concrete structures still standing are scarred by blasts or punctured by explosives. Taliban fighters who participated in the battle here and other fights that ripped this province apart are now in charge of guarding the same streets and bases they helped destroy. Abdul Karim Zarqawi was one of the Taliban fighters who fought five years ago. The 31-year-old Taliban fighter said, compared to achieving an Islamic government, this destruction is nothing, he said. We would fight this way over and over again if the infidels returned. Susanna George is the Kabul bureau chief for The Post. This story was produced by Lexi Diao and edited by Maggie Penman. It was mixed by Sean Carter. To read more and to see pictures of what Hellman's looks like now, check out Susanna's story online. We'll put a link to it in our show notes and at postreports.com. And over the next two weeks, we are going to bring you two more episodes about the ongoing consequences of the war in Afghanistan and of America's chaotic withdrawal. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.